The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk and should not be considered legal, business, or medical advice. Hello and welcome to the Healthcare Maze Podcast. My name is Mike McLafferty. I'm the CEO and founder of MGM Advisory and Educational Services. Today, we will discuss value-based care. We're pleased to have as our guest on the podcast today, Brian Kern, who is the partner with Acadia Professional and is the CEO for Deep Risk Management, which is the value-based care division for Acadia Professional. Brian, I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and about Acadia Professional? Thank you very much for having me, Mike. My background is actually as a healthcare attorney by training and then in medical malpractice insurance. So we founded a medical malpractice insurance brokerage many years ago, and we had sold that to a group that was a consolidator. And for a little while it went well, but we realized it wasn't the most innovative place in the world to be. I made a difficult decision to to leave. And when I left, I had to figure out what to do for two years. I had a pretty restrictive non-compete. I ended up getting involved with some data analytics startup companies in healthcare. And that's where I really gained a lot of experience related to value-based care. One of the things that we did during that time was form what's called a convener, which is a company that has a direct contract with the government under a program called Bundled Payment for Care Improvement Advanced, BP, if you've ever heard of it. So part of that process is to just get the contract and then go out and find physicians, physician practices that want to take part in episodes of care. We recruited an orthopedic practice, a cardiology practice, a vascular surgical practice, and went forward with the program, which is a fascinating program because you have to learn how to control the cost and patient outcomes not just for a diagnosis and an office visit or a surgical procedure, but for everything 90 days thereafter as well. That's where we gained a lot of experience, but specifically on the risk side, because under that program, you're taking a significant amount of risk, about 20% downside risk per episode. So risky venture. We had ups and downs. We insured downside risk, so we were okay. But once my non-compete expired, I realized I should get back into the game in a variety of ways. My partners had already formed an agency called Acadia. So I came on and joined Acadia with them. That's a medical malpractice insurance brokerage, as you mentioned, called Acadia. We're national. We're one of the few independent remaining brokerages. But last year, based on experience and realization that healthcare risk is changing, I decided to start a company with my same partners called Deep Risk Management. And that's our value-based care consulting company. And that's where we consult with physicians, help physician practices understand value-based care, but as important, work with them to understand the downside risk component of value-based care programs and how to transfer that downside risk so they're not left holding the bag. I thought was really good practice for you and your partners was episodes of care. But that I remember that was a kind of a bridge, like you said, going into more of a risk type venture. And I did see a lot of clients over the years who decided to go and get involved in episodes of care. 
And if they had enough patients where they could spread the risk out, that seemed to work pretty well for them. I was just going to say, so some specialties found it a little bit easier than others. Orthopedics was a good one because they were able to focus on some specific areas where they felt costs were too high, skilled nursing being one of them. Oftentimes with certain procedures like vascular surgery in a trauma setting makes it much more difficult to follow patients, but certainly for planned procedures like hip replacements, joint replacements tended to be pretty good. I think you did a really good job of explaining Acadia, also the deep risk division. How do you, when you're meeting with physicians, how do you guys define value-based care? It falls into two buckets, episodes of care, which we were talking about. And to give you an example, let's say you're an orthopedic surgeon, and obviously I'm using very round numbers and easy numbers, but let's say as an orthopedic surgeon, you would make $3,000 to do a hip replacement, but the entire episode for the insurance company for the payer costs $30,000. The problem with the old way, the fee-for-service way, is that all of the entities involved in that care, the hospital, the skilled nursing facility, the rehab center, the physicians, the anesthesiologists, right? They're all billing at their maximum level to try to get as much reimbursement as they can back to their entities. And we always liken it to building a home, right? When you go to build a house, you're not opening up the yellow pages to find a plumber, an electrician, an architect, an engineer, the builder, and everybody involved. You turn to a general contractor and hope that general contractor is going to be able to manage that whole process for you because they have insight into it. That's what we think is a great analogy for value-based care. The insurance company is not a general contractor. A physician, however, can be a great general contractor. And back to our orthopedic example, an orthopedic surgeon can manage the total episode of care we think best. The way it would work is rather than an insurance company going to the physician and saying, we're going to pay you $3,000 to perform this surgery, they go to the orthopedic surgeon and say, this episode traditionally costs $30,000 to us. We're going to give you $29,000, and it's up to you to figure out how to make payments to all the parties involved. There is a lot of risk involved, but we think if you do a good job, you should be able to manage those costs because they tend to be a little bit inflated just as a starting point, and you should be able to negotiate them down. Obviously, there's a lot of risk involved, so that's where we come in to make sure we understand the rules of the road perfectly and are there to ensure against the downside risk so they don't end up losing too much money. Obviously, they could, but so that's an episode of care. On the population health side, this is a primary care play. It's a much bigger play. It's not an episode of care that lasts 90 days. It's basically full care, full treatment for all patients. So to give you some rough math here, let's say it's 100 doctor primary care practice treating 10,000 patients. That cost, particularly in a Medicare setting with older patients, for those 10,000 patients might be $100 million dollars. Now we're talking about much bigger numbers. The insurance company, just like the episode of care, comes to the primary care practice and says, all right, we're going to give you $100 million to manage all care, drug costs, hospitalizations, all specialty care, everything under the sun to manage your population. And if you can reduce the cost down to a certain number, we'll share that savings with you. But again, if you are on the other side and costs are more expensive under your care, you're responsible 
for that risk. That's the idea of value-based care. The government has been way out in front on this and can make fun of the government all you want, but they've done a really great job with value-based care, making programs available to physicians. The commercial payers are slowly catching up. And I say slowly, we'll get into this a little bit more, but also what's happening is the payer dynamic is shifting as it used to be Medicare. Now it's Medicare and Medicare Advantage used to be Medicaid. Now it's Medicaid and managed Medicaid. So we see more movement on the hybrid commercial government side than we do on the commercial side. That's a good point, because I would think that uh, on the commercial payer side, we're still in the combination of quality measures and cost control and all of those different contracts. So it's a different place. So this is more from your standpoint with your organization, getting more involved on the governmental side of this and trying to do deals. Let's talk about your client, because to do what you're suggesting to be the administrator of all of these different costs, you would have to be dealing with a sophisticated, technology-oriented organization to have that done. We've always tended to try to support the independent practice of medicine as much as possible. So we work a lot with large physician organizations in a variety of capacities. We work with a lot of oncology practices because there are specific oncology programs through the government. It's to be called Oncology Care Model OCM, and it's going to be called EOM, Enhancing Oncology Model, starting next year. So we've had a really wonderful experience with a lot of community oncology practices throughout the country and spend a lot of time trying to support those organizations. I mentioned other surgical practices in the episodes of care. Accountable care organizations are, generally speaking, the groups of primary care physicians that are taking on these contracts with the government. So they can be pretty large. It's very unusual (laughs) for a group that's going to enter into these programs to not have a data analytics partner because CMS is going to share massive amounts of data through their claims files. Obviously, you need to follow HIPAA and comply with all of its terms. These files are so large that in order to really drill down and understand who your highest risk patients are, where you need to deploy your resources, and how to coordinate care all across the continuum of care. You have to really be able to get granular with these patients and stratify them based on where you need to deploy resources. As I said, a data analytics partner is essential to be successful in this program. And what is typically realized throughout this process is you might not need to hire a whole additional team of, quote, care coordinators, but you might need to repurpose, retrain some of your existing staff a little bit. So rather than just follow up to schedule an office visit, you follow up to make sure that they followed through with their referrals to the cardiologist, that they filled their prescription, things like that. My experience in this area, the care coordination function, however that was staffed and managed, turned out to be really critical from the cost control side because they could, with the data that they were getting from the practices themselves, focus on the higher risk patients and make sure that they were being compliant following through with their treatment of care with CMS or the commercial side. You're not always exactly sure where you stand with the cost savings and your goals until you sometimes get to the end of a particular fiscal year. And then at that point, you find out we did well, we didn't do well. Even if you're having quarterly meetings with these organizations, the insurers need to provide cost data in real time. So you really know how you're doing 
as you're going through your fiscal year, I think the movement towards value-based care will accelerate considerably. But a number of providers I've worked with over the years got surprised in a negative way. And let's talk about, that's obviously the big disadvantage here. Let's talk about the disadvantage of not making your cost goals because as you and I know, that's when you do not get paid or need to pay extra money because of the risk you're taking. Everything you just said is really important. Care coordination is absolutely critical. Keeping patients out of the hospital and managing their overall cost of care is how you become successful. And I agree on the claims file side, when you're only getting your claims feeds quarterly, let's say, or worse, your reconciliation annually, that's very challenging because there's a whole world devoted to trying to figure out who your attributed patients are, who your attributed patients aren't, and trying to predict performance and how you're going to come in. So there's a lot of variables to this. For the practices that end up not performing well and have to pay money back. It happens a lot. And our industry is struggling in similar ways with that attribution that I just mentioned and how to ensure practices are not only avoiding hospitalizations, but there's a whole coding art to value-based care. Because think of it this way. If you're an oncology practice and a woman comes in with stage two breast cancer, but she's a 40-year-old, very healthy runner, you're going to get a certain amount of money to treat that episode. If a 85-year-old woman with five different comorbidities comes in with stage two breast cancer, it would follow that you need more money to treat that patient. So that's the whole concept of risk adjustment and making sure you're getting the appropriate amount of money for your patient's presentation based on comorbidities. The insurance company's challenge is trying to make sure not only to price things appropriately and to be there to absorb the downside risk, but also, especially deep risk management, that's why we tend to do as much consulting as we do brokerage, helping clients understand the rules of the road so much so that they're going to ensure they get the appropriate amount of reimbursement. They have the appropriate benchmarks Mm -hmm. for all of their patients. It's much harder to lose money when you are understanding your patient population and reporting your patient population really well. And that goes back to data analytics and understanding your patient base. That's a very good point. I think that one of the things, any work I got involved in over the years with ACO to really understand what their true acute level was, which had a a big impact, obviously, on their reimbursement, was something I found in most cases not to be something people really focused on to make sure that was accurate. It was whatever the feedback they got from CMS at some point, I guess that's our acute level. But as you say, I found over time in a couple of cases when I got involved with a few ACOs having problems, that reporting more accurately, as you said, the high-risk patient portion of the population made a big difference with the acute level rating for the ACO and did help. So I understand that part of it. And I think that's it's interesting that you say as much as the brokerage part or the insurance part, you're doing this consulting. I think that is something that I think differentiates your firm in a very positive way from, from other firms I see in this space that are just looking to assure providers that if they lost money, 
there's something that can fall back on that might help them from an insurance point of view. So that's good. You're doing the upfront work with them, which should lessen or potentially eliminate any major issues with losses. We invested a tremendous amount into being able to assess the practices that we work with. So we get the data. A lot of others in this space are just facilitating a data transfer between the client and the underwriter and just waiting for a quote to come back. Given our role, we don't think that makes any sense. We want to look at the data. We want to understand the high-risk patients, the coding practices, the hospitalizations, so that we can have these types of conversations up front. Because what we found is based on traditional variation in this space, you could lose a lot of money and insurance companies have lost a lot of money. So of course, what happens, prices go way up. Insurance companies want to make sure they're spreading this risk overall. So even the really well-run groups are being penalized. Where we've been successful is going through that process to say, yes, here are the benchmarks. Here's this group. We understand your initial math, but you also need to understand the changes that have been implemented by this group and the reason why the trends are going in the right direction are not due to traditional variation, but due to real hard work, good care coordination, and a better understanding of the patient population. So you could probably work with thousands of licensed insurance brokers out there, but we recognize that there are very few, if any, actually doing the kind of work we're doing and filling this void when it comes to downside risk and value-based care programs. Let me ask you one last question here as we wind this up for today. If I'm a lead partner for a large physician organization and I'm thinking about getting into value-based care, what are three key things that you need to think about before you start to do that? What would your advice be? It's the perfect question because there's a lot of commercial payers out there right now that are claiming to offer value-based care programs. If they're not sharing meaningful data, and not that this is a bad thing for the practices, but if there's no real risk share there, then it's not teaching these groups much and it's not preparing them for the future as the payer dynamic changes. We need to first get data on our patients any way we can. If we can get it through the government, great. If we can get it through the commercial programs, great. But if we can't, and a lot of groups can't, Practices need to start collecting their own information. Patient satisfaction surveys are a great start. Patient reported outcomes, which are becoming a new metric, is a really important way to gather information on your patients. And then just capturing as many metrics as you can. Maybe you're treating patients more conservatively. Maybe you're getting them back to work quicker. Maybe you're saving costs. Anything you can accumulate internally is going to help you get to that next level. If you sign up for some of the programs, the value-based care programs, especially with the government, the data comes along with it. You're not obligated to participate in the program until you've had a chance to review the data. So any chance you have to at least apply. The oncology model coming up is a perfect example. ACO reach application that passed, just getting applications in is so important from my perspective, because one, you learn the process of applying and the buzzwords and what the payers are looking for. But two, if you get past that first round, you get the data and then you can start to understand 
what areas are most important to focus on in order to be successful in this new future of value-based care? I agree with you that the biggest challenge for a lot of these organizations is not just getting timely data, but getting as accurate data as you can. And you have some sort of a effective care coordination process in place You've got a good shot at doing well. I've seen a lot of people move forward to value-based care as kind of an add-on, keeping whatever fixed fee contracts they had. Use the time now to learn so that at some point down the road, if there's more of a transition involved, you're ready for it. Still get the feeling on the provider side, from the physicians, the hospital, surgery centers, Anybody who's involved at all thinking about moving to value-based care, there's still not a lot of trust there with data coming in from the government. There definitely is not a lot of trust with the commercial payers. I don't know if you get this feedback at all from people who are hesitant about this trust factor and the lack of collaboration. Could not be more accurate, Michael. Everything you just said is really valuable there. I will say Government programs are getting much better at turning around data quicker. So the new oncology program is going to be monthly claim files, which I think is significant. There are data analytics companies that pay a lot of money to get the full CMS data sets. They can be really strong partners. But walk it all the way back, just what you said. Even though some of these value-based care programs are very light on data sharing, very light on risk, we absolutely encourage them because this is the way to get your foot in the door. Take advantage of these programs and start chipping away, start earning trust, because that's the key. And that, and your point is right on. The reason why there's not meaningful data sharing is because of that lack of trust. It's a long-term process, but you have to start somewhere, whether it's gathering your own data, getting a little bit of data and start <laughs> chipping away, getting more data, bigger, taking on more risk, getting bigger shared savings. It's a process, but you have to start somewhere. I agree that the sooner you can start learning about value-based care, the better. I think we covered a lot of basic building blocks today of value-based care. We talked about the advantages and disadvantages. We talked about how to offset some of these disadvantages, especially with the data analytics side and understanding better how to price out services that providers are involved in with value-based care. I want to thank Brian for being a guest on our podcast today. Thank you very much, Michael. Please follow the podcast. You can be advised when a new episode is available. You can also email us at thehealthcaremaze at gmail.com with any comments and suggestions. And again, for all our listeners, thank you very much for listening for this podcast. 